0: And it doesn't matter how brilliant somebody is, they're not brilliant enough to compute all the variables and all the information required to make a good decision. So the only real kind of option, which is seldom really appreciated enough by people, is to actually surround yourself with as many different perspectives as you can possibly handle, who are more likely to check your blind spots, more likely to calibrate your thinking, more likely to help you make good decisions that you're incapable of doing on your own. And machine learning and AI alone won't do it because they're influenced by the same people who think like you.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Learning Rewired, where leaders are challenged to rethink what, how and why they and their organizations learn. Learning Rewired is a collection of interviews and conversations with leading minds and progressive thinkers in the multiple domains influencing personal and organizational transformation. Learning Rewired is proudly presented by HeadSpring as a free contribution to fostering cultures of continuous learning. I'm your host, Bevan Rees. My guest today is Stephen Frost, CEO and consultant at Inclusion Specialists, Frost Included. Stephen was previously Diversity and Inclusion Advisor to both the UK Government and former White House Office, as well as Head of Diversity and Inclusion for the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Stephen, great to have you on Learning Rewired.
0: Thanks, Pavan. Great to be here.
1: Stephen, I, th- I think I'm going to just dive straight in. You know, I can't recall a better time to be talking about diversity and inclusion. You know, I don't think there are any points that need to be made about the current environment we're in, in terms of the intensity and energy that we've been talking about. So even before the tragic events of George Floyd's death a few uh, weeks ago in the United States and the real rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and many movements rising in consolidation and support to the Black Lives Matter movement, we were already seeing under COVID, uh, under the COVID-19 pandemic. Pandemic, a number of systemic social inequalities seeming to rise to the surface. And those were already developing their own momentum. So we're in this stage now where multiple movements around equality, justice, minority rights seem to be coalescing into this strident move forward. Is this what it feels like, Stephen? I mean, is this really a strident move forward? Or is this a lot of energy and air? And do we expect this to dissipate? And in retrospect, we'll look back at it as just another small step on the way to progress.
0: Well, thanks, Bevan. I mean, yeah, you, you really have dived in there, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's the, the question, right? Is, is this just a moment or is it uh, something bigger? And uh, I, I think I could never be arrogant enough to give you a definitive answer, mm-hmm. but I could definitely postulate some potential answers. On the one hand, it really depends on what it is for, let's say, an organization. Mm-hmm. We see organizations really respond and indeed do diversity inclusion work in one of three ways. Either they're compliance-based. I call this diversity 101. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So, you know, there are legal requirements around racial equality. And so you comply with the law. And that could be on a number of of things. There's a paradigm which is around marketing. And you do this because it makes you look good. Mm -hmm. Diversity 2.0, if you like. And so, for example, in response to Black Lives Matter, We've seen some phenomenal marketing. I recall how Adidas, Adidas, and Nike retweeted each other, which is unheard of, right? (laughs) Two rivals to do that, (laughs) which is wonderful. But the challenge with the compliance approach and the marketing approach is whether actually they are insufficient. And there's a third approach, which I call really inclusion 3.0, where we're actually concerned with changing. Influencing, embedding in the decision making structures and the design process of the core organization. Mm -hmm. So, is this a moment or is it something more? It depends what paradigm an organization is in. Mm -hmm. If an organization is compliance led or marketing led, it might just be a moment in the news cycle. And then after the tweeting and the virtue signaling, we move on. But if your organization is in the third space of actually influencing what you do and the decisions that you make, I think it's much bigger and it's a significant change. Mm. Why? Because I think as in any movement, any change, once you achieve a tipping point of the majority, the dominant group, the powerful group getting on board, then change can happen. And what's unprecedented this time, I think, with some organizations is that majority white audiences are saying what happened in Minneapolis was abhorrent. I can see this as part of a wider systemic pattern I feel that I want to do something and join in on doing the right thing. And when I talk to CEOs or HR directors or talent leads, they're getting a bucket full of emails, calls, pressure from their own people, Mm -hmm. asking them, what are you doing? And so when the majority rises up, then you get changed. so. Is this a moment or something more? I hope it's something more in the sense that more and more organisations are in that third area, genuinely influencing what they do. The reality check is that still many, many organisations are in the first two paradigms. Mm. And once the new cycle moves on, they might too. But I think we're seeing some specific examples of where there is profound change happening. Mm.
1: So Stephen, just to, to tease apart, I mean, that's that's a fantastic response to start with. Thank you so much. So to tease apart, I mean, there are a few things that stand out from your answer there. One of them is the, the idea of a tipping point. So obviously to reach a tipping point, there has to be a movement. We have to have this kind of transition from, let's stick with your levels, organizations in group one, two, and three. We have to see transition of organizations in group one and two towards group three, right? That's the only way we get towards this tipping point. The obvious question is, Why would that happen? What would initiate that? I mean, another point, another word that you used, there was pressure. You were talking about internal pressure that uh, talent leads and learning and development leads in the organization are hearing from people within their own organization. So organizations are having this internal pressure. There's also a lot of external pressure. I remember reading a survey that was recently conducted in the States, literally a week and a half ago, across a number of consumer segments and 80% of the respondents said that they would remember the way that brands treated their people during COVID-19. And I think that's, that's a fundamental point There's definitely the sense during COVID that organizations, well, well, let's actually rewind a bit. The conversation of COVID really became about people. There was the sense of shared humanity that we're all in this together. And because of the financial stress, obviously many organizations had to make very tough decisions around people. And there was the sense that organizations were under a lot of scrutiny under the decisions that they made. And that survey really kind of confirmed that for me from the consumer's point of view. So we have these internal pressures and these external pressures. And do you think that that is enough to basically force this transition from group one and group two towards group three? Or do you think organizations have to have almost an inherent will, some kind of something within the internal system that drives that change?
0: Well, none of the drivers are necessarily mutually exclusive, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, there's an internal staff pressure, there's a consumer pressure, there's a legislative pressure, there's a reputational pressure. You know, it's probably the the compound effect of all of these drivers that's going to do it, right? And I think back to what's going to move organisations really along the maturity curve on diversity inclusion is a combination of these things. Mm. But ultimately, different people are going to be influenced by different things particularly. And I think certainly when I talk to executives right now, they are, in some cases, really, really struck by the volume and the level of the pressure that is coming from their own people, which they care about, but also don't definitely from consumers as you intimate with the report you cite. If I think about two examples that have certainly come across my desk, one was how Britannia hotels dismissed people, I think on the first day or two of the COVID crisis Mm
2: -hmm.
0: with just Mm bye-bye. And the other was how Airbnb Mm -hmm. let people go. And they let a lot of people go, but I think the way that they did it with a level of transparency and honesty and empathy was, you know, notable. So I think you've got different ways. and And I think what this points to is it's not just what you do, it's how you do it. The methodology that organizations do, and I think this comes down directly to the role of HR and l and d that we can have a technical response, right? but ultimately a technical response alone to a cultural problem will fail. You need to have a combined technical and cultural response to a cultural problem to actually succeed. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at moving on this maturity curve, and what are those drivers? Well, if you're in tech and you produce driverless cars. And we know that the AI technology in the camera-based system on driverless cars has a harder time seeing darker skin tones. And so driverless cars bump into black people more than white people, as confirmed by a Georgia Tech study four years ago. Then, you know, it's intellectually, emotionally, morally, ethically, and also pressure from internally and externally that's going to say, that isn't acceptable. And so we've got to, like, influence the design process to change. If i think right now pharma companies doing clinical trials for covid vaccines right we know that disproportionately black and asian folks are dying from covid-19 if we just have randomized controlled trials with majority white people, that isn't actually good science because you're not actually having the right kind of sample to produce the right kind of drug that will deal with the problem. Mm-hmm. So whatever your driver is, moral, ethical, but but increasingly why I think CEOs and HRDs and folks in HSPs are getting activated about this, because they realize it's not just pressure to move along the maturity curve, right? That we've been talking about this for a long time. There's actually a bit of a burning platform. Because when once before it was inconvenient that driverless cars bumped into black people more than white people, now it's unacceptable. Mm. And, and so, you know, given the, the lead in design cycles and systems and processes, we need kind of more urgent action. And so, whatever it is your business does, makes things, gives services, whatever, I think a lot of people now are asking profound questions about how are we actually debiasing and checking our whole product cycle.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. That idea of the urgency that comes from that burning platform is very clearly a, a big push, right? What about some of, I mean, if we, if we just change the focus slightly to some of the benefits of diversity and inclusion that, you know, more, more of a pull rather than a push. If we go beyond the urgency. So what are we looking at that could sustain this move over time? As you say, once the new cycle ends. Many organizations might end their focus on this, but not if there are cogent reasons to continue this form of transformation and development. So many of our listeners are incredibly familiar with a lot of the research on this that shows how much diversity and inclusion support innovation, for example, supports organizational resilience. Is there anything that you think particularly stands out now in the age that we're in that makes diversity and inclusion, or perhaps even specifically inclusion, something more important than ever?
0: Yes, and I think the way you framed the question was great in terms of in the times we're now in, because as you say, you know, I'm sure listeners are familiar with the research and the college between talent and innovation and creativity and attrition and all awesome. So that's fine. But for me, to your point about is there anything particular that stands out, if I'm talking to an exec and I'm trying to convince them of the pull factors for diversity and inclusion, rather than sell them. Diversity inclusion. You simply, I think, reframe it 180 degrees and start with what is the problem you're trying to solve and how are you right now? And a lot of people find it hard to admit vulnerability that they are pretty stressed, they are pretty full up, they're pretty tired, they're pretty, you know. And it's no surprise when you think about the fact that doing a job today is infinitely harder than it was even 10 years ago. One of the major reasons being that the amount of information we have to process to do our jobs is increasing exponentially. As a rough kind of calculus, the amount of information that comes across our desks is roughly doubling every two years. So with that exponential growth in input we're supposed to absorb, we unfortunately don't have an exponential increase in our brain capacity and cognitive ability to process that information, right? So there's an increasing gap between what we're supposed to be able to do, and what we're actually capable of doing. Mm-hmm. So there are these feelings of stress, inadequacy, never being on top of things, you know, so look, stop, what, what do we do about this? You know, do you give people more money? Do you give them more holiday? Do you give them flexible working? Do you, sure, all of those things. But fundamentally, we're in an impossible situation. And it doesn't matter how brilliant somebody is, they're not brilliant enough to compute all the variables and all the information required to make a good decision. So the only real kind of option, which is seldom really appreciated enough by people, is to actually surround yourself with as many different perspectives as you can possibly handle, Mm. who are more likely to check your blind spots, more likely to calibrate your thinking, more likely to help you make good decisions that you're incapable of doing on your own. And machine learning and AI alone won't do it because they're influenced by the same people who think like you. So actually, how do we see inclusion? as this tremendous tool to include the resource of diversity to help us with the most pressing questions, the most pressing decisions we have to face right now. And so above and beyond all the kind of research we know, at a really, really primal level, in order to help oneself, right, in order to kind of be in one's own enlightened interest, how do we actually make use of diversity to improve the decisions we are accountable for? And I think, you know, there's lots of good examples where we can show how that works. But for me, that would be an incredible pull factor if we could articulate it correctly to people who most needed it right now and have empathy for people who appear to be, you know, unconcerned with diversity inclusion in the first place. Mm.
1: Empathy. I mean, that's a big word, right? And, and you used another word a little bit earlier, vulnerability. Leaders who are vulnerable enough to share this with you, that they were really stressed, et cetera, et cetera. And as with all forms of transformation and change, there's challenge in the process itself, right? So, I mean, listening to you, it's very clear to me, it's very obvious to me, perhaps, and perhaps to most of our listeners, this real lure, this benefit in surrounding yourself with multiple perspectives, in essence, in the long term, making your job easier and allowing more efficient decision making. But for a lot of leaders, let's say for many leaders... That transition is difficult, right? It requires letting go of a number of habits. It requires letting go of control. It requires inviting multiple perspectives that might not feel comfortable. So am I hearing that for this kind of shift to happen, leaders need to focus on developing other personal capabilities as well? It's not just about employing a diverse team and employing inclusion strategies. It's about the leader actually developing personal competencies that allow that process to flourish.
0: Yeah. And that gets the point that in a sense, what is inclusive leadership? It's good leadership. What is good leadership? It's inclusive leadership, right? In a sense, you know those core competencies. But remember that core competencies are a mixture of innate and extrinsic, and we, we learn them and can unlearn them. And we learn a ton of bias, and we learn a ton of unhelpful things which don't help and get in the way. So almost unlearning that stuff is important, right? Of all the skills that we need to succeed, from self-awareness to reflection to empathy to insight, I think a key one for me is adaptability, right? Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, where a lot of leaders go wrong is that we think because of our position or our privilege or our power, others adapt to us, right? You know, I regularly hear things like, she doesn't get it, right? Or he doesn't get it. But actually, if we can adapt to them, right, it's actually ourselves being more agile and adaptable ourselves flexing and learning and actually ultimately being more successful by applying ourselves to the problem at hand right it's also almost analogous to customer service right that rather than treat people like you'd like to be treated you, you treat them like they'd like to be treated right and then they'll buy more from you so this adaptability is essential. and to your point yeah to, to a degree it's it's core competence right mm-hmm. but it's not I mean, universal, right? Mm-hmm. And, and certainly all the work I come across on a daily basis shows that there's still quite a lot to do. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, Stephen, I mean, we've spoken about the individual in terms of leaders. But what about organizations a little bit? So let's zoom out a little bit to the organizations themselves. I mean, what do you see as companies needing to do to get this right? And how do you see companies shifting their priorities, especially in terms of the, the talent areas and the, the development, learning development areas of the organization? Yeah.
0: I mean, I guess we, we can at that in a couple of ways. I think one is this moving up the maturity curve, right? From mm-hmm. seeing it as a compliance issue or a marketing issue to a core design issue, whether that's push or pull or both. Um, but fundamentally, if we're in this third space, I think there's five things that stand out as what organizations really need to think about. And if you're a talent leader, HRD, CEO, you want to really think about. One is overall strategy, right? So what is it you're trying to do? Like at the end of the day, you, you know, what is your company for? And how does inclusion feature in that? So if if you're making drugs, you know, you're at a pharma company and you're doing clinical trials, how are we figuring that out? You know, what is it you do? And putting that in an overall strategy is important and engaging your exec in a roundtable discussion and so forth is, is important. And just one final thing on that. For me, one of the best examples I've got is, I think, of the Olympics, where, you know, really good women and men on the London 2012 Games would see diverse inclusion initially as a separate work stream. Um, But actually, rather than being an extra work stream there for an opportunity cost, it's actually a methodology of how you do the strategy, right? So think of it as a mindset. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is data. Diversity is relatively easy to measure, right? But ultimately, it's about projecting that diversity, what do you look like in the future, and then measuring inclusion. So suddenly, if I think of the big four consultancies and professional services firms, the big business case for them was, hang on a minute, 20 years ago, we were more diverse than our client base, Now our client base is more diverse than we are. That isn't sustainable for an advisory firm. So knowing what you're going to look like in the future is important. Mm. The fact that, you know, if you're Gen X onwards, you know, and you're in a decision-making capacity, you're probably in a minority right now. You're probably Mm. making decisions from a minority perspective. Mm. But the inclusion, measuring inclusion is so important, right? So this is stuff done with the Bank of England and Wellcome Trust and others where you look at actually how included people feel, and then you know what are the behaviors you need to work on to increase those points of inclusion. A third would be governance. So how do you make decisions from the board and exec down, network groups? A fourth would be leadership. So actually, how, to your earlier point, how are we developing core competencies in our leaders? How do they get, this is their job, you can't outsource this to HR, L&D, right? This is actually your work to do. And then finally, systems. Thinking about all the systems in an organization, systems that you might control, whether it's performance management or learning development or retention or recruitment or procurement or marketing? How can we map out those systems, identify areas of bias and de them to actually mm-hmm. make them better? So I think these are things that organizations need to, to look at. And a final point I'd make is that, you know, we've got really smart people in organizations, we've got good people in organizations. My hope is that they apply that smartness and that goodness to this issue, because too often small people dumb down diversity inclusion as a Friday afternoon activity, right? No, it's, it's core to good decision-making. Mm. So if we can think of it as a methodology and apply our intellect resources and skill to it, we will stand a much better chance of doing some good stuff in this area. Mm.
1: Just, I mean, thank you, Steve. I mean, the, the, those five pillars, I suppose, those five areas, I mean, that really helps clarify the, the way to think about this. I mean, just a quick question around measurement when you are speaking about measuring diversity and measuring inclusion. And measuring diversity is generally and traditionally easier than measuring inclusion, isn't it? I mean, it's, we could be quite brutal just about demographics, and that gives us, for many people, enough to tick the box in terms of their organizational diversity. What have you seen as good techniques or good ways of measuring inclusion that really provide a representation of the feeling in the organization and the landscape?
2: Hmm
0: i mean i think i think framing is right i mean one just quick carry on the diversity mm. is, of course it depends on geography and legal jurisdiction i mean in mm. france you still can't ask half the questions you can in the uk for example mm. Mm. But yeah let's take that as a kind of a relative given sure and on the inclusion piece it really depends you know it's about getting useful information from which you can gain insights and then make, take actionable decisions, right? Mm-hmm. So too often, I think organizations think they're doing inclusion by doing a poll survey that asks questions such as, I am proud to work for X. Mm-hmm. Well, great, but so what, right? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with that, right? Pack yourself on the back and open, open a bottle of champagne. I think it's much more useful if you take a view as to the kind of diagnostic questions you want to ask to get at those specific behaviours that are contributing to or detracting from inclusion. So rather than say, I'm proud to work for X, right? If you say, how often are you interrupted in a meeting? Mm-hmm. Or how often are your ideas attributed to somebody else? Or how safe is it to disagree with your boss without fear of retribution? If you ask much more specific diagnostic questions, right, to actually get at the behaviours we want to look at, Then you're onto something, because then you can actually say, aha, right, okay, Mr. and Mrs. C-suite, if you really want to make X organisation more inclusive, then actually, number one, note that black women are the least included in your organisation. By the way, including with older white men who feel passed over or introverts, and if you want to better include them, the specific things you need to look at are your own behavior in meetings where actually you're unintentionally excluding people. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can actually get into not only measuring inclusion and who's included, but what you can do to better include them, which goes back to the point we discussed before about decision making. Mm-hmm. Right? That it's all good and well saying, oh, yeah, we're going to include millennials in our decision making process or we're going to include introverts in our, in our- a decision-making process. But if they're so psychologically unsafe that they can't actually contribute to the meeting, then you're not going to get the value that you should be doing. Mm.
1: I mean, that, that sense of psychological safety, this is really strongly connected to the culture that's prevalent in the organization, right? Or, or even just within the team or within the sphere of any particular leader, isn't it? That's a big growth process, you know, and it takes time. How do you see HR and l specifically being able to influence that process, the development of that kind of culture?
0: I mean, I think it's a journey. I mean, one we should be humble enough to say that you know, HR LD needs to start with itself, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, we've got to fix some of our own issues first of all. I think there's stuff there, right? I mean, the hashtag HR so white that's trending at the moment on Twitter is interesting to take note of, no, right? But so I think there's that. But I think to your point, to take focus on this journey, I often like to think about it as framing, right? First of all, that it's a journey, not a one-off. This is mm-hmm. not a, a tick box exercise. You can say, yeah, we've done that." Now <laughs> moving on, right? Mm. And we know that it takes like a minimum three months to change habits, right? If you want to, you know, if you want to use behavioral economics to lose weight, then just make sure the sweets are in a harder-to-reach cupboard and the fruit bowls further in the centre, right? Mm. Uh, it'll help. So, what are the kind of nudges of behavioral economics and things we can do over a three-month-plus period to change and to take people on this journey? And there's a couple of ways I think we can try and deal with that. One is a process that we developed at the Olympics and Paralympics back in the 2012 Games, and that was around understand, lead, and deliver. So do folks understand the actual problem we're trying to solve, right? Back to where we started this conversation, right? Black Lives Matter, why Why now? Well, maybe now because some white people have, you know, relatedly realized that actually being black every day in the UK or where people are living was actually a far worse life experience than it was if you're white Mm -hmm. for no reason. So I think understanding the problem is the first thing, right? Is it driverless cars bumping into people? Is it vaccines that don't work as well? You know, is it reputation? What is is the problem we are trying to solve? And then I think lead is about understanding that it's our work, our personal work, right? You could be the straightest, whitest, most alpha male going, right? It's your behavior that will determine the level of inclusion in that organization, not some black person, some disabled person, some gay person, right? It's you and your work. So how actually we can kind of frame that as an intrinsic part of leadership is important. Mm. And then thirdly, I think, deliver. So this is great. And it's great that you've read that speech and you've held that meeting, but it's fundamentally about the actions that you undertake and commit to and that they're sustained. So what are the things you're going to do, right? And rather than just necessarily champion something or attend something, it's great. Are you going to change the way you run your meeting? Are you going to give people equal airtime? Are you going to actually you know, solicit contributions from underrepresented members of the team? What is it you're going to do and how you are held accountable for that, transparency and so forth. So I think one way of looking at it is this kind of understanding process over a period of time, really. And practically, where I've seen this work well is when you engage people on their terms, in their language, you know, in a way they understand. Mm. You minimise defensiveness to, you know, maximise humour and empathy and understanding and get by it and use the data and be data-led and evidence-based. So look in the mirror, right? This is where we're at. Mm. and then to kind of perhaps do some group work where people can realise, wow, actually, we're all going on this journey, but then do some individual work where actually, you know, Bevan, you might say in the group, oh, yeah, I think this is really important, but privately, you might be like, actually, Steve, you know, what is this really about? And, mm. and actually, what, what do I say here? Or what likely I be vulnerable and admit things you don't know privately. And then ultimately go back to some group work where you can reconcile those things. You can reconcile the cognitive dissonance between what you're saying and what you're actually doing. And you personally can work on closing that gap, right? So I say that I champion Black Lives Matter. I tweet about it. I, you know, how many black people have you hired? Mm. So okay, and then you can close that gap. And I think working on that over a period of time is one way of creating more sustainable, more personal change, which I think is not only more profound, but it's just more effective, right? Mm. Sending people on a, on a training session.
1: Mm. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's very clear how that would lead to more depth and, and also just more persistence in terms of change. Talking about the, those three areas, understand, for example. I mean, from our experience, I mean, well, from my viewpoint and, and from experience, many HR and L&D functions in businesses are well enabled to do that, to deliver greater understanding or at least access to great to more information that can lead to greater understanding. The second part, lead, where we're really asking leaders to, at some point, step into greater accountability. And also the third part about really stepping into action. So this is about being able to show that you are walking the walk and talking the talk. From your point of view, in most organizations, you see how much power do HR and L&D functions have? to push those kind of agendas, to kind of require and encourage leaders to be more accountable or measure action, to hold leaders, to hold individuals within groups within the organization accountable to the actions that they've committed to. Do you see many HR and L&D functions empowered enough to really follow those kind of processes through?
0: I think that's a great question. Can I be controversial? Please. (laughs) So with full empathy, to HNLV colleagues. I think let's look at this from a kind of a diagnostic perspective and let's look at some practical ways forward. Cutting to the chase, I think often we have HRL and D, which might actually feel an insecure department in an organization that they may be not at the top table, maybe they're not, you know, dealing with clients internally that are people, people, and they might feel insecure about their own role. And then you give the diversity inclusion work or the change work to perhaps a junior person in that department, often female, often minority, often not empowered. And we wonder then why nothing ever happens. So you're giving the hardest work Mm -hmm. to the most junior or least resourced or least empowered person. And then we're like, well, why hasn't anything changed? You know, why are we still having the same conversation we had 10 years ago? So I think one is we need to kind of do a hard look at diagnosing this whole situation, the power dynamics and decision-making to start with. Now, of course, it could be that actually, no, 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 it's a very people-led organisation, that L&D is top of the list, that that HR is absolutely at the top table, and this is being led from the top. Great. But all too often, that's not the case. And we need to be honest about that. Mm. Let's say you are in that very challenging situation. It's going to be hard graft, right? It's going to be really hard to do that change. And so I think we need to be very creative about it. And we need to think about the fact that how do we lead without authority? And how Mm -hmm. do we actually co-opt allies, ideally allies with more authority, to make this a group project rather than individual Mm endeavour? Because if you set out as an individual endeavour, no matter how brilliant you are, if you haven't got authority or you're not empowered, you're going to fail. So you've got to build it somehow. Mm -hmm. And so I think L&D folks and HR folks can genuinely build allies across the business, right? Now being a wonderful time, raise consciousness around these issues to say, look, my job is not to tell you what to do. I mean, my job is to facilitate your journey, right? Mm. This is your work, this is your business. It's actually how we can facilitate that and work together, how we can be complementary, how fundamentally we can prove the business case for diversity, right? By working together and sharing our skill set. Mm. And so for me, it's about actually giving the work back. And challenging our colleagues in turn to say, you know, what do you want to do about this? I've got some ideas. I've got a potential roadmap here. And here's one I prepared earlier. But fundamentally, what do you want to do about it? And calling out the fact that if you're expecting, you know, the world, but you're offering a very junior resource that's empowered, you're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you do work on building these allies and so forth and you build momentum, uh, you've got a better chance
1: that That's a profound new way of of approaching this kind of thing, stephen from from my point of view, and it really evokes a lot of that those principles of I suppose courage and accountability that form a spirit of you know what we're seeing in the environment and society around us at the moment, these kind of calls to greater courage and greater accountability. Just one final question about where we're at and what this means for people and organizations. As we now move into the space where human beings are now going to be recongregating. you know, we might see second waves of COVID, you know, the, the regulations might change and the regulations are, you know, to your point earlier, in this particular case as well, different country to country, et cetera. But as we see more and more people moving back towards co-working environments or office environments, but still split between that and virtual environments. Do you see this as an increased time of challenge or a time of opportunity to really cement this these kind of change? I mean, the kind of change that you're talking about literally two, three minutes ago, or is it a big mix of both?
0: I think it is um, either A, a blend, or B, a bifurcation, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So first of all, we should acknowledge that in terms of the big return, some people have been there already. Right. Mm. I mean, like if you're a frontline worker, you've never not mm. been there, right? Mm. So we need to make sure that we're inclusive and in thinking about the fact that some people have never had the luxury yeah. of home working. But in terms of the big return, I think really it could go on two ways. So by the bifurcation, I mean that we've seen over the last few months greater humanity, right? We've beamed ourselves through Zoom calls into people's living rooms and dining rooms and got a you know taste of the human being behind the job title. Mm. And long may that continue. Because that humanization, naturally increases empathy and understanding, and that can only be a good thing, I think, for trying to do this inclusion work and move us up the maturity curves so we've been discussing. The flip side of that, of course, is that I think in-groups and bias and networks can be reinforced by absence. Right. Mm. So, if actually in your own house you're only zooming into calls with people that you want to, or that already agree with you, or people that won't challenge you because you just don't want to have that conversation when you've got your kids running around in the lounge, right? Then actually it could deepen divides and and exclusion and so forth. So I think it could go either way. So what I mean about bifurcation. Mm. Mm. But in terms of the blended thing, I think, look, you know, with all due respect to fellow diversity and inclusion professionals, we've been arguing for flexible work for 20 years. And suddenly, bingo, we've got remote working, right? Um, something that's been lobbied for, for for years has happened in a matter of days. Yeah. So and when, you know, trading floor bankers can see that they can run a trading floor from their living rooms, suddenly the question of remote working becomes a moot point, right? Mm-hmm. That actually... The future will be a blended future between home and office. And, and so that's great. It opens up more opportunities. And I think it's great. It humanises work. It, it gives us the opportunities and it, it offers amazing potential. But again, does it offer this bifurcation of where maybe you're not going back because you've got caring responsibilities or your parent homeschooling. Whereas if that's not the case, you go in and you can hang out with the real decision maker and a split occurs. Mm -hmm. I think we just need to be mindful to generally seize the opportunities that this presents. You know, I'm very optimistic about the future with tech, remote and in-person, that blend. But we need to be very mindful of the downsides of that. And Mm -hmm. I think HR and LD has got a tremendous responsibility to minimize those downsides and capitalize on the opportunities. And then it just makes things happier, more productive and better for everyone.
1: Yeah with all of us, well, many of us, as as you say, working in this virtual state almost overnight over the last few months. I suppose this is one of those blind spots, isn't it? Diversity and inclusion has been spoken about and focused a lot in society, but small things like that, the the potential for our means of communication to either intensify or reduce diversity inclusion has not been focused on that much, and you know, I suppose that that's natural. I mean, we were all doing something new, so it's impossible for us to imagine and think about all these extra little details. But these nuances are going to become increasingly important and really valuable to start thinking about them now. So, Stephen, thank you. I mean, <laughs> tremendous insights, and really enjoyed enjoyed your points. Thanks for thanks for joining Learning Rewired and and for being here.
0: I really enjoyed it, and all the best to you and uh, your listeners. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening. For more on our guests and the resources described in this podcast, please refer to the information section of your podcast player. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to receive updates and latest episodes of Learning Rewired, brought to you by HeadSpring.